You guys good? You ready? You got Galatians marked? I'm going to read verses 6 through 10. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So it's hard to resist being that it's the year 2020. And the vision references, you can't ignore them. It's just too easy. So in that sense and in that vein, I decided to title our study in Galatians, Seeing Christianity Clearly, Having 2020 Vision. For what in the world is Christianity? Why do we show up here every Sunday morning? What's this all about? What are we doing here? What does it mean? What is Christianity? And so we did a series on kind of hearing the voice of God, hearing from God, real simple, basic thoughts. And I think this is going to be really refreshing as we go through Galatians, refreshing for me, refreshing for you to talk about what is Christianity and can you describe it to a 10-year-old? I mean, if you can't describe Christianity to a 10-year-old, I don't think you know what it is. Now, I have a cheesy illustration for you this morning. Are you ready for the cheesy illustration? Okay. How many of you like cheese? How many of you like this kind of cheese? Uh, Brie is probably one of my favorite with some avocado oh, on bread. Delicious. Now, here's what I want you to do. If you came with someone you're comfortable with, I want you to turn to that person and say, what is cheese? Just ask them, what is cheese? Describe to me what cheese is. What's cheese? And then if we have a volunteer, someone would like to come up and in two sentences explain what cheese is. Anybody like to come up and explain what cheese is? What is cheese anyway? I mean, we eat it. We enjoy it. Our doctor tells us we should eat less of it sometimes. But what is cheese? So we've got brie, and it's got the ingredients on the back, which I'm not going to read to you. But then you get into this realm. Now, wait a second. It says American Singles. It says cheese product on it. Wait, it contains American cheese. It does contain at least 50% American cheese. But is this cheese? We eat it. You want a cheeseburger. You don't put brie typically on your cheeseburger unless you're at a real high-dollar restaurant. But you put that and you call it a cheeseburger. But then, now some of you I'm going to get back to when you grew up. How about this? Velveeta. Is that cheese? How do you know? You see, we like cheese and we eat cheese, but sometimes we have a hard time saying what cheese really is. Real cheese is just milk that's been cultured with something called rennet. And that's what cheese is. It's just real simple. But this, should I read the ingredients on this thing? Titanium. No, it doesn't say. <laughs> I watched a video about a guy trying to burn Velveeta cheese and it wouldn't light on fire. There's no cheese. It's a cheese product. And it used to be. Now, here's the thing about Velveeta. How many of you grew up with macaroni and cheese made with Velveeta? You didn't call it macaroni and cheese products. You called it macaroni and cheese. And it used to be what they started making this stuff because they had all these leftover pieces of irregular cheese wheels and wanted to know what to do with them. So a, a guy combined all the little pieces of the cheese 
and added what's called an emulsifier that keeps them from, when you heat them, keeps them from separating. And that's why it's called Velveeta because it creates a velvety sort of texture. It all holds together nicely. And it used to contain cheese, but over the years, the recipe has changed. And now it turns out, not cheese. It's not cheese. Now, with cheese, maybe it's important, maybe it's not. See, I told you it was a cheesy illustration. But unless you know what cheese is, you won't know what cheese isn't. Now, the basic problem in the book of Galatians was what is Christianity? What does it mean to be a Christian? You see, the people in Galatia, we'll talk about that region and where that region is in a minute, but the believers, just like you and me, Paul had come and he had preached to them the good news that just as you are, you can have a relationship with the living God, the God of the Jews, the God of the whole. There's only one God. And you, right where you are today, by faith, you can enter into a relationship with that living God and he will enter into a relationship with you by faith if you believe it. And that'll change your life. And they heard that message. They believed it. But then Paul moves on to plant more churches and do his missionary work. And then another group of people come in and they say, well, what Paul said is partially true. But first, you have to have Jesus and you have to become Jewish. You have to keep a certain set of rules and regulations and stipulations because God only accepts people who do these things. And they got freaked out by that. They started to get really agitated by that. And they were turned away because they didn't know what Christianity really was. They didn't have Bibles. They were writing the Bible at the time. I mean, Paul's letters that were written to them have now become memorialized for us so that we can read what they read, what they figured out, as Paul tried to correct them and say, no, 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 this is what Christianity is. It's different. It's different. And you need to know when you're eating cheese versus some artificial byproduct that looks similar but is different. And I hope that that's what we accomplish as we go through the book of Galatians. It's phenomenal as these teachers have come and brought them back under what we call legalism, where rules-based, performance-based religion is what's being taught. See, it's not an uncommon thing to see even in our day. The sign says church, just like the package says cheese, but what's being taught there is not the real thing. And it's not just a small difference. When it comes to cheese, cheese is cheese, but we're talking about people's lives. We're talking about people's eternities. And not just for their eternal destiny, but even the way that they live, what it produces in a life. So these are real important matters, and it's important for you not just to know what Christianity is for your own sake, but then to be able to communicate that clearly to somebody else. Do you think you could turn to that same person and say, tell me in a few sentences what Christianity is? Maybe you meet someone on an airplane. I've met people on an airplane. I've met Muslims on an airplane. I said, why should I be a Muslim? Tell me, why should I be a Muslim? If someone asked you, why should I be a Christian? What would you say? And I've come up with an answer for that. Three words. Because it's true. That's my simple answer. Then that leads to more conversation. But how do you answer that question? What is Christianity? So Galatians is going to answer a lot of those things for us. The Galatian believers were confused and uncertain and believed what this group of what we call Judaizers, they were people trying to bring people back under legalistic Judaism, what they'd been told. They were bewitched, they'd been influenced, 
they turned to Velveeta from real cheese. And Galatians was written to clearly lay out for the young churches exactly what Christianity is and what it means to them. Martin Luther, how many of you know who Martin Luther is? The reformer, his life was tremendously impacted by the book of Galatians. In fact, he's famously quoted as saying, the epistle to the Galatians is my epistle. To it, I am, as it were, in wedlock. It is my Catherine. Catherine was his wife's name. He said, I am married to the book of Galatians. Now that's pretty serious, isn't it? It was his favorite book of the Bible, and it was the sword that he used in his fight against the Catholic Church and against ritualism and traditionalism. Galatians is sort of like a Cliff's Notes or a short draft version of what Paul expands on in the book of Romans. We'll talk about law and liberty and flesh and spirit. It's a lot shorter, thankfully. I'm kind of excited. It's a lot shorter than the Corinthian books and Romans we've been in since the Gospels. Uh, this is only six chapters, and it's only 149 verses. You can sit down and, and read it in maybe 15 minutes easily. Some of our favorite passages in Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. We're going to talk about something that is known as justification by faith. And if you have no idea what justification by faith is, that's good. That's why you're here, because we're here to learn about these things. So that's the basics of Galatians. Let's just jump in at verse 1, and we'll give some more intro as we go through. You ready with me at verse 1? Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, he says. So this is his greeting, a standard way of writing a letter in the ancient world. You started with your signature. You started with who's writing the letter. And Paul introduces himself. We're familiar with the Apostle Paul. At least most of us are. We talk about the Apostle Paul. We read about him in the book of Acts. He had a tremendous, compelling conversion story there in the book of Acts where God just grabs a hold of this guy who was Jewish, a wonderful Jewish student, rabbinical student, studied under the best Jewish teachers, pursuing Judaism, climbing ahead. He was the kid voted most likely to succeed in his little Jewish study, in his Torah class. I mean, he was just hammering it. He was all in in Judaism. And he was just an all-in kind of guy. Because once he found out the truth in Jesus Christ, then he was all in there. And he realized he couldn't be all in in two things. And he had to be all in with what was true and what was from God and not from man. See, there's things that come from God and there's things that come from man. And Paul makes it clear. He says, Paul, an apostle. An apostle is one who is sent a messenger, a delegate, an ambassador. I'm sure right now there's a lot of delegation happening on the Middle East front with the United States. And someone who is sent on behalf of somebody else they're not going of their own accord. They're not there with their own message. They're there to be a representative. So Paul says, I'm an apostle. I'm one who is sent as a representative, not from men or through man. So what are Paul's credentials? Who is his sending agency? I'm sent through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Because that's what they're questioning about Paul. They're questioning Paul's authority. That's always where the question comes down to authority. Who gets to tell people about heaven? Who gets to tell you about God? Who gets to tell you what's right 
And what's wrong? I mean, if you're in the school system, if you have a child in the school system, you know all about authority. What happens if your third grader comes home and says the teacher spanked your child today? What happens then? They don't have the authority to do that. It's my child. I punish my child. You don't have the authority to spank my child. It's all about authority, right? You following me? Somebody who's awake say, yeah, we're with you, pastor. Now, yesterday I'm coming down Route 15 and some wild person decides to pass on a hill across a double yellow line. And there were cars. I mean, there were, it was like a game of chicken. And there was some evil part of me that wanted to speed up and just, you know, like, oh, I'm going to show you, right? Coming head on to some car coming that way. And I'm tempted. My foot is going, oh, and I'm praying, oh, Lord, help me, help me. Because I want to hit that accelerator and I'll box them in. I'm going to teach them a lesson. Because I couldn't make a citizen's arrest. You know, I want to put the siren out on the roof and pull them over and go, you idiot. But I don't have the authority to do that. So they're questioning Paul's authority. Who are you, Paul? You're just a lone ranger. You don't have the authority to tell us about God. I mean, you know, we're talking about Peter and we got James and we got the Jerusalem church and we got the law. And, and Paul, we're not trusting your message. That's what these false teachers were saying. And that's why Paul mentions that right off the bat, not from men nor through man. He's going to a higher authority. And look, in our world, that's where we need to go. Men make laws, men make rules, men make decisions, but we got to go to a higher authority. And that's what Paul does. The higher authority, he says, is Christ, Jesus Christ and God the Father. See, modern day ordination, if you send somebody out, people go through school, they get a bunch of letters, they get some things after their name, a group of people say, amen, we've now equipped you to go do it. But if you're not called by God, if you're not sent by God, who cares if you're sent by men? In my situation, do you know I had no authority to do this? We planted a church. And I remember when we were first endeavoring to start a church here in Fluvanna County, some people that we knew at the time said, can you do that? I said, I don't know. Let's find out. But there was a calling. And how did I know? There was fruit. Things were happening that were not in my control. God was doing something in a group of us. And we all knew it. We couldn't define it. Like, how did that happen? I don't know. Why us? Who knows? But if God is calling, who cares what man says? So Paul is going to that higher authority. I think the other part of this is I wasn't pursuing this. I wasn't pursuing a career in religion. I wasn't pursuing this direction in my life. He was pursuing a completely different direction, and God got a hold of him and changed everything in his life. That's how you know it's from God. Man, changed everything in his life. So he says, an apostle, not from men, he's not sent out by men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. So even referring to the resurrection, how do you top that? The resurrection changed everything. And we'll come back to that. And all the brethren who are with me. So we don't know where Paul is exactly when he writes this letter, or who is with him exactly when he writes the letter. It doesn't tell us Sometimes so write Paul and Timothy or Paul, Timothy and Sosthenes or give a few other names, but he doesn't give us any names, so we don't know who exactly is with him. But he makes a point to say, I'm not alone. There's others that are with me. But where he is is a matter of speculation, and I'll give you some more information on that in a minute. He says, he gives where the letter is to the churches, notice the plural, to the churches of Galatia. Now, that's plural. That means this is a letter written to more than one church. It's not written to a single church. It's written to a region. It's like writing to the churches 
of Midwest America. Galatia is a large region. Now, I'll tell you this. I'm not going to go into detail. There's all kinds of debate about whether this letter was to the churches in a northern region of Galatia, which is more culturally French or Gaul. Galatians comes from the word Gaul, which is French origin. So is the letter written to the churches in the north that we have no record of Paul planting in the book of Acts, or to the churches of the south, which are in the book of Acts, Pisidian, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. Just know that there's a debate about that. If you want to follow that up, you can. But for all intents and purposes, we're going with that he wrote this letter to the southern churches. Can you live with that? That's what most people kind of settle down to, probably to the churches of the south. But that was modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor in the ancient world. Paul planted churches there, traveled through there, had some amazing experiences there. And that's who he's writing to. Some say he is writing on the eve of what's called the Jerusalem Council, Acts chapter 15. The early church, one of the biggest struggles they had was to decide what is the connection between Christianity and Judaism. And the Jews believed that God was their God and that for someone to be accepted, a non-Jew to be accepted by God, he had to become a Jew. And then he could be accepted by God. He had to come to God through Judaism. And this was the big debate. This was the big issue that they faced is the experience they were having was actually God is touching the lives of people without becoming Jews, without going through all the rituals like circumcision and keeping the Sabbath and doing all those things. So the Jerusalem Council was where the early church definitively made the decision that no, Gentiles, non-Jews, do not have to come to God through Judaism. They can come, the Billy Graham invitation, just as they are. Aren't you glad for that? I mean, how do you get a group of older Middle Eastern men to get circumcised? Like, I got to get circumcised to become your religion? No, thanks. I'll wait. (laughs) So this is the big debate they're having. And some say Paul wrote this as he's traveling to Jerusalem to defend the work of God among non-Jews. He hears about what's going on, and he writes this letter to the people in Galatia. And they would get this letter and they would spread it around, pass it from church to church to church. Okay, verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. What a way to start. I mean, he gives his name, who he's with, who the letter is to, And then the classic greeting of grace and peace. Grace would be the Greek charis, the Greek greeting. And then peace would be the shalom that would pick up the Jewish greeting or blessing. So he says grace and peace. And who he's representing from God the Father. That's who is greeting them in a sense. God the Father and our Lord, Jesus Christ. And it's easy to overlook that. It's easy to, our Lord Jesus Christ. But Lord means master. And Paul had settled that issue in his life. I don't know if you have. Is Jesus your Lord? I mean, he's Jesus. He's Jesus. It's just Jesus. He's the Savior. But is he your Lord? And Paul, clearly, no problem with that. Whether you like it or not, he's our Lord. He's our master. It's a good master. It's a kind, gentle, loving, merciful, compassionate master. But he is, nonetheless, our master who gave himself for our sins, we'll come back to that, that he might deliver us, we'll come back to that, from what? This present evil 
age. Now that is remarkable. I would have expected him to write something else. I don't know what, but deliver us from the punishment for our sins, deliver us. I don't know what else he could have written, but circle evil. Just circle that word. And you have to know there's two different words that can be translated evil and are translated evil in the Bible. Kathos and poneros. They're two different words. Kathos is just evil. That person that was speeding past me and cut me off on the road, that's just evil. I don't know if they were malicious about it, but there's just malicious evil in the world. Would you agree with that? But poneros is defined as full of labor and hardship and pain. It can be translated pain-ridden or referring to the inevitable misery and pain that comes from living in an evil world. Are you following me so far? It can also mean diseased or worthless. So when Jesus is talking about the lamp of the body is the eye in Matthew chapter 6, he says, therefore, if your eye is good or healthy, working properly, then your whole body is full of light. But Verse 23 of Matthew 6 says, if your eye is bad, and it's the same word here as evil, poneros, if your eye is worthless or diseased or not working appropriately and thus causing you pain in your life, then your whole body will be full of darkness. So as we try to put these ideas together, there's a pain associated with the poor vision, not seeing correctly the world that you live in and which involves rejection of God and a sense of accompanying worthlessness that causes pain. You know, not all pain is physical. Matter of fact, most of the pain that people are in, you can't see it. It's emotional. It's spiritual. Would you agree that we live in a world filled with pain? That's what Paul said. He's just acknowledging this age from the original sin, from Adam and Eve in the garden, till now, until Jesus comes and establishes his kingdom, we live in an age of pain. G.K. Chesterton wrote in response to an essay about what's wrong with the world, his simple response was, I am. We even disappoint ourselves. I want to be a better person. I want to be a better listener. I want to be more compassionate. I disappoint myself. Are you with me in that? And we're trying. And we're the group that's here trying. There's a whole bunch of people that aren't trying, that have rejected God and therefore have rejected purpose. If our purpose is to worship God, if our purpose is to be in relationship with God. When you reject that purpose, no wonder people feel worthless. You ever find yourself in that moment of clarity, just sitting at your cubicle going, what in the world am I doing with my life? What is this all about? What does it matter how many sales I have this month? Or what does it matter these numbers I'm crunching for tax season? Or what does it matter for this or for that? What does it matter? If that's all it is? Well, so the answer of this present evil age is I'll work harder. I'll try harder to be successful. See, the thinking, the culture of this present pain-ridden, remember, it starts with the root of labor and toil that produces pain. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to work harder. going to find a sense of worth, but I'm going to find out that that thing I thought would bring me value, does it? It doesn't. We got a generation of kids growing up without God, and they have no idea why they should do anything, why they should do what they do why they should be good, why they should not do this, why they should do that. What's morality? If there's no God, who says anything is right and wrong? They don't know it, but it creates anxiety and pain. Technology will save us. Better government is the answer. Even, listen carefully, religion, rules-based, works-based. We take that works mentality. If I work harder, 
then I'll get ahead. If I work harder, then I'll be happy. We take that mentality that's rooted in this present, painful, laborious age. We take that and we slap a label on it called church. And then the message of the gospel of this age is if you work harder, you'll get God's blessing. See, if you do more, if you study more, if you read more, if you pray more, then God will have to bless you. Be careful. It's a twisted gospel. Now, I'm not saying Bible reading is wrong. I'm not saying fellowship is wrong, but we're Americans. More is better. And I got to figure out how to get God happy so I get blessed. In Nepal, watching people, Hindus or Buddhists, with their prayer wheels, have you seen those things? They've got this giant prayer wheel. They believe that if you spin the prayer wheel, that it throws your prayers up somewhere and your prayers get answered by spinning these wheels. Have you seen them? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? You can Google that. Where I was in Kathmandu, they've got this huge wheel and people just go in circles. It's like their faces are dead, their eyes are empty, and they're just walking in circles, spinning this wheel, hoping for something. It's this present evil age. It's up to you. You got to do it. You got to make your own way. You got to get God to bless you and you got to work harder to make it happen. And Paul says, this is what God is trying to deliver us from. And the word deliver is to choose out for himself. There's this present evil age, this present age of pain. And God the Father, it was his desire, that's what he said there, according to the will of God the Father, it's God's will to get you out of that, to rescue you from that, to choose you out for himself, to deliver us. And to do that, what would you give to rescue someone from pain? I walked into the med clinic yesterday and I walked in there, and man, you want to talk about long faces. It's a group of people here because we know we can't fix ourselves. So we have come to the physician because we need help. We were desperate. A desperate, snotty, tissue-laden group. Pathetic we were. All just hoping for mercy and medication. But we were there because I needed it. I tried elderberry syrup and turmeric and ginger tea. I tried everything. Even some torture device called a neti pot. I was desperate and nothing I could do could fix my ailment. So I came with the rest of the humble and said, I need help. It's beyond me. What would you give? How much money do you spend at CVS when you got a congestion headache and you're sick? Like there is no, I don't care what it costs, just give it to me. I'm in pain. And I need to get out of pain. You know what I'm talking about? Are you with me? But there's nothing I could give. I can't get myself out of the pain of sin and this culture that I'm steeped in. So Jesus Christ gave himself. Ladies, don't you want a guy who'll give himself? Not just his money. Money's okay. But not just his money, just your time, your life. Girls, wait for a guy who will give himself to you. So we've got this distant God who just somehow all he cares about is that we don't sin, that we don't do that, we don't do that. All he cares about, he just wants to punish us because we don't keep all the rules. Church is just the place where I learn the rules. That's all church is. Place where I go, some guy tells me the rules, and then I go try to keep the rules. But I realize I'm lousy at keeping the rules. So I have to hide and pretend that I'm keeping the rules and tell everybody else that I'm keeping the rules so they think I'm keeping the rules. Meanwhile, none of us are keeping the rules Anyway, Jesus wasn't forced to the cross by a heartless heavenly father. 
God is not a distant or detached deity. Jesus is compassionate. And he sees the pain and the labor that this world is steeped in, the messages of this world, the messages of American culture. And he says, I'm going to choose you to rescue you out of that. I'm going to set you free. Jesus said it. Come to me. Come to me, you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now the church hears it and reads it, but I think there's still large portions of the people of God that still have not experienced the rest that Jesus has promised. He gave himself to you to join himself to you to rescue you. And that was the will of the Father. That's what God wanted for you. I don't want to send you to hell. Where's that message that all God wants to do is send people to hell? Where does that come from? Have you heard that before? Oh, why would I want to serve a God who just wants to send people to hell? I'm like, you don't know. You don't know, my God. He is so compassionate. He looks at your life and he says, if only you would trust me, I could help you. If only you would trust me, I could pluck you out of the misery that evil brings, that selfish desire brings. And then verse six, he just jumps right in. None of these, oh, I'm so glad to see how faithful you guys are and you're filled with the Spirit. He just says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. So he starts out, I'm blown away. Now, when he says, I marvel, what he's saying is, I am shocked. One person said, continually dumbfounded, blown away. I cannot believe that you guys are turning away or deserting, being moved from one place to another. I mean, they were in. You heard the gospel. You heard about the grace. You received the Spirit. You heard about Jesus and what he did for you, about God's forgiveness, that they heard the message that God loved them. He was more concerned with a relationship with people than he was about punishing them for their sins. And that's why he made a way to forgive them. They heard the message and now they're turning away, not from a message. Do you see that when it says, I marvel that you are turning away and it's currently happening. It's in the process. The language is currently in the process of deserting him, a person. They're deserting Jesus. They're walking away. Jesus is not enough. You ever had someone tell you you're not enough? You ever had maybe a parent, an ex-spouse that said, you're not enough for me? Oh, the pain of that. Now they're walking away from Jesus. Why? Because they're being told Jesus is not enough. That's the twisting of the gospel, that Jesus is not enough. Jesus and this. Jesus and you can't drink any caffeinated drinks. Jesus and you got to do this. Jesus and for them, it was Jesus and you got to get circumcised and you got to keep the Sabbaths and you got to keep the festivals. You can see why this letter was so important to Martin Luther in his Catholicism. Because it's Jesus and you got to do this. I marvel, I'm dumbfounded, blown away that you're so quickly, in other words, impulsively, it's happening so fast that you're turning away from him who called you in the grace of Christ. You learned about grace. You learned that Jesus paid it all. Now see, the problem for us in the church is you know it here, but in here, there's still that nagging feeling of, I got to do something. 
Have you known anybody that's got attracted by legalism? There's an attraction to legalism. I know somebody I can think of right off the top of my head. I found out they're off on some kick with Messianic Judaism. And I'm not downing Messianic Judaism, but I'm just saying that they're a Gentile. They're not a Jew. And all of a sudden they're keeping Torah or their version of it. And they're keeping the Sabbath and they're doing all these things. I'm like, if you want law, you got to have all of law. The law of God is not a piecemeal thing. I choose this, but not that. You can't have Jesus and law. That's what Galatians is about. You cannot have Jesus and law. I want Jesus, but I also want some law. The law is done. It's finished. And Paul's going to have to address that. If you've come from a legalistic church, the law is attractive because it sort of acts like guardrails in my life. It's sort of, I can follow the law and it'll keep me safe. And then when you come into a church that preaches grace, you go, whoa, there's no law, there's no rules. Then you sort of, oh, I can do anything I want. Your relationship with God is not based on anything you do or don't do. But if you don't have a relationship with Christ and you go the other way and all of a sudden, woo, do whatever I want. And Paul is going to answer that question and discuss that in chapters five and six. What constrains the life of a person who's not under law, but under grace? How do you learn how to live? Fantastic letter, fantastic stuff. They had been called in the grace of Christ, but to a different gospel. It's not the same kind. It's completely different. It's a binary thing. You can't have works, what you do, accompanied with what God did. It's either what you do or what Jesus did. It's one or the other, and you choose. Look, there's some people here. You've come from legalistic church background. You're still carrying some of that. It's really, I just got this nagging sense that I've got to do something. Boy, once you get that in your noggin, in Greek, it's noggin, Greek word for brain. No, it's not. Once you get that in your brain, it is life changing. How many of you have come from a legalistic background? Came from a church where it was all about, you know, what you do. And all the preaching was what you got to do for God. Obedience, 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 obedience. Or else God is not going to love you. Or else God is not going to bless you. How many of you have found out that grace is God blessing me even when I don't deserve it? Man, if God only blessed me when I deserved it, I'd be in a miserable state. Grace is that God blesses you when you don't deserve it. Some of you, your family, raising your kids under legalism, all that is at home is, here's the rules of the home, and you break the rules, you get in trouble. You break the rules, you get in trouble. Break the rules, get in trouble. And that's all the relationship is with you and your kids, is break the rules, get in trouble. God says, I love you so much. As a parent, you can choose to forgive your children. You don't have to punish them all the time. You can choose to say, you know what? My relationship with you matters more to me than how you've offended me. Therefore, I forgive you. That's radical. That's the heart of God. God looks at you. Now listen carefully. God looks at you and says, my relationship with you matters more to me than any offense you've committed against me. Therefore, I've made a way for forgiveness and relationship. And they're turning away. They're choosing Velveeta. Sometimes Velveeta is more attractive. There are some people who are coming, the Judaizers, the law-abiding people. There are some who trouble, are currently troubling you, and want to pervert, to turn completely around to the opposite, the gospel of Christ. It means to turn to the exact opposite. Darkness turned to light. They're twisting it completely around. And they're troubling you, stirring up, agitating. Maybe someone's come to you and said, you go to church on Sunday, not Saturday. Saturday's the true Sabbath. 
And if you don't go to church on Saturday, then you're not really saved. Anybody ever heard that? That heavy trip? I have multiple times. Oh, you don't do it this way? Oh, you don't do it like we do it? Oh, well. You know, that's how you tell where a cult is or where some kind of pseudo-Christian thing is. How is a person saved? If it's Jesus plus anything, it is a perverted gospel. Twisted. It is Jesus plus nothing. Satan is poneros. He is the evil one, the wicked one. He is the one who brings pain and tells you you're not doing enough. You ever heard that message in your mind? How can God love you? You're not doing enough. The way you treat him, Satan brings that stuff. And that's why you need Galatians to to fight against that, that God's love for you is truly unconditional. Truly. His desire is not to punish you, but to bless you. He loves you like crazy. He really does. And Galatians tells us that. Verse 8, But even if we or an angel from heaven named Moroni or any other angel preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, even if I show up some later time and bring another gospel, then let me be accursed, given over to God for destruction. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. It's a terrible thing to pollute the well of salvation, to turn the sweet water of salvation by grace into the bitter water of works, of what you do for God. And Paul says it twice, let him be accursed. Even if they say, oh, an angel showed me this, an angel told me, an angel told me I can't drink caffeinated beverages. What is up with that? So God cares if I drink, you know, like what do we think God is all about anyway? Well, yeah, I am belittling. It's stupid. A lot of stuff, a lot of man's rules. See, these are rules that originate with man. God never said it. But man decides, well, these are the rules that you got to keep to be close to God. Because there are rules, and we abide by our rules. Then you don't know God. And you don't know gospel. It's touching people's lives by faith, by trusting him. Let me read verse 10, and then we'll wrap it up. He says, for do I now persuade, am I trying to please men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. He says, look, I'm serving Christ now. And the message I give, I can't give a message that pleases people. My message, if you want what the world has, the message from this pulpit is going to be irrelevant. If you want a message that says, hey, you can achieve more, you can be a better Christian by doing more, that's the world's message. You ain't going to find it here. We are wonderfully culturally irrelevant to the culture there, but beautifully relevant to a healthy spiritual life. All that you need is a genuine desire for God. Listen carefully. To get saved, to be saved, to be in a relationship with God, all you need is a genuine desire to be in a relationship with God. That you care, that you want to know God and to believe that Jesus Christ made it possible through the cross, through forgiveness, the door is open for you to come to God. And if you believe that, guess what? You will come and you will pursue knowing God and you will find that he meets you right there and all the blessings of God are there for you before you do rule number one. It's all there for you. The only thing that keeps you is you.